Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Long Story Short class. My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're with us tonight. Thank you for being with us. We are um, coming down the home stretch in this class. I can't believe it. We've been at it since January, and now we are really getting close to the end. Um, this is week 15. So we're talking about mission. We're talking about the mission of the church as it's recorded in Scripture. Um, Next week is week 16 when we're going to look at the church. And we won't be meeting next week, as I mentioned. Um, Beck and I are going to be away at a conference, so we're going to skip that. But you got to come back for week 17 because then we're going to talk about Revelation, everyone's favorite, feel-good, not-at-all-confusing book of the Bible. So please join us for that. Hopefully in an hour we will, um, we'll probably not put to rest all your questions about the book of Revelation, but hopefully we'll put to rest some of them. Now, another thing I want to let you know is that in lieu of a podcast, or sorry, in lieu of a class, next week Becca and I are going to do another AMA podcast, another Ask Me Anything podcast. So this is an opportunity for you. Uh, no question is too big or too trivial. Um, for you to ask. So whatever has been rattling around in that old brain of yours, feel free to email us and share it. We would love to hear from you. Um, and you can send that to us anytime uh, this week or this weekend. Just email it to me or to Becca. We'd love to hear from you. Um, before I dive into talking about the book of Acts, let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people who have set aside time on, in their busy lives and on a very rainy night to come out to church to learn about Holy Scripture. I pray that your spirit will be present with us. Um, show us the glory of Jesus, your son, on the pages of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this week uh, we're looking at the mission of the church as recorded in scripture this puts us mostly in the book of acts so most of the readings for this past week were mostly from acts there are a few epistles here and there um, jumping to the books the book of acts poses a question what question does it pose it poses a familiar question how did i get here um so the question how did i get here um the first four books of the New Testament are gospels, and they focus on telling the gospel, the good news of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. That's what you get in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The middle and later sections of the New Testament are all epistles, right? They're all letters written by particular Christian leaders to Christian communities. Most of them are by Paul. Many of them are not by Paul. There's, there's Hebrews. No one knows who wrote Hebrews. Goodness gracious. So some of them are quite mysterious. Um, so you got a bunch of gospels at the beginning, and then you got a bunch of letters at the end. And the book of Acts is kind of sandwiched in between those two in a very interesting fashion. It's unique. It's not a gospel, but it's not an epistle either. It, it's focused on the work of the Spirit in the early church. So uh, some people say the Acts of the Apostles is misnamed, that a better title for it would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, which is an interesting way to think about it. Um, as we'll see, the Holy Spirit really is one of the driving forces throughout the book of Acts. Um, so Acts is this very, um, in terms of its genre, in terms of the type of literature it is, it's very interesting and unique in the New Testament. In chapter one, Jesus says some stuff to the disciples that provides a thesis statement for the book as a whole. You all remember what a thesis statement is from uh, high school or college uh, humanities classes. Some of you remember fondly, some of you remember with a shudder. I assume you do remember, right? So the thesis statement is the beginning of your term paper, you say, right, here's what I'm going to say in this paper. Here's the argument I'm making. So the thesis statement provided by Jesus in chapter one is of great import for the rest of the book. So let's pull out our Bibles real quick. We're not gonna take a lot of time and discuss this. We're just gonna look at Acts one verses one through five. So pull out your Bibles as I will pull out mine. 
Okay, everybody got it? Looks like we got it. All right, I'm going to read this. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, the thing I want you to see here, the, the thesis statement I'm talking about isn't in these five verses. It's a little bit further down in verse 8. The thing I want you to see here is what's going on in verse 1. Acts 1.1, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did. Anyone want to hazard a guess about what's going on in this verse? So the author of Acts is indicating that he's written another book. It's, that's, that's right, Peg, it's the book of Luke. So go back to, stick your finger in your Bible and go back all the way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. So Luke 1.1, 1, 1, in my Bible, the paragraph heading just says, dedication to Theophilus. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who, were, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, I too decided after investigating everything very carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So you th you know you'd be um, liable to think that Theophilus was just this throwaway addressee of the Gospel of Luke, except he then turns up at the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. They're addressed to the same person. So th there is a co commonly accepted scholarly theory that Luke and Acts are indeed by the same author, um, and that Acts is kind of a sequel to the. To the Gospel of Luke or a continuation of it. It's very common in scholarly circles to hear them referred to as one work with a hyphen in the middle. Oh, Professor so-and-so, what do you study? Oh, I study Luke Acts. Um, because they're, they're assumed to have a single author to be telling a single story that can be traced over both books. So uh, just an interesting side note here about the authorship of Acts. So we... Um, does it go back to the real apostle Luke? Mm, who knows? But um, it's definitely coming from one source, from one person or a small team of people working together. Okay, now let's go on to the thesis statement. Okay, look at Acts 1.8. Now I'm way back in the Gospel of Luke, so I have to go back to Acts 1. Okay, so... We will continue, let's actually start at Acts 1, 6, okay? So we just read Acts 1 through 5, now we'll begin with Acts 1, verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So, you can see there, there are two, um, there are really two statements there. So one is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, Acts of the Apostles is a book about the Holy Spirit. It's a book about the Spirit's mighty works among the disciples, through the disciples, in spite of the disciples. And so that's one thing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Second, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, there's some nuances here that I want to be sure we, we get. So uh, you can see a map here. Can all of you see that reasonably clearly? Okay. Um, so you can see this is a map of Israel-Palestine. So you see the city with the star, that's Jerusalem. 
Um, and then you see um, north of that, um, there's another city with a star, that's Samaria. So when Acts says Judea, um, that's referring to the area right around Jerusalem. So that's where, um, that's the, where the temple was at this point. That's the heart of the action in many of the Gospels. Judea is the area around Jerusalem. Samaria is this separate city further north, um, very close to the city of the same name. So you can see Jerusalem's in one place, Samaria is in another, and to the ends of the earth. Obviously, that means to the ends of the earth, every place else. Those three words are not there on accident. They're there as an indication of the expansion of the mission of the church. They're there indicating, it's as though Jesus was saying, you will be my witnesses in Naperville and in Chicago and in Milwaukee and all over the place. The same cumulative kind of effect is going on here. And when you look at the structure of the book of Acts, this is where it gets really interesting, right? The book of Acts in many ways is structured around this threefold mission. So in Acts chapters three through eight, it's focused on the church's mission in Jerusalem, in Judea. So the action centered in Jerusalem there. In Acts eight, we begin to pivot to a mission beyond Jerusalem, to Samaria. And in Acts nine and following, you get mission all over the Mediterranean world. So the theme of Acts of the Apostles is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. It's also the story of how did these group of 10 or 20, 10 or 20 of Jesus' disciples, um, who, whose behavior did not exactly inspire confidence, how did they become a worldwide or a, a Europe-wide religious phenomena? How did that happen? And the Acts of the Apostles tells us a story about how that began, at least. So we're going to focus today on the Apostle Paul. Um, but I want you to remember this structure, the Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth structure of Acts of the Apostles, because it's really important. So let's go on and read a little bit more about Paul. So we're going to begin um, with Acts 7, 54. So find Acts 7, 54, and we're going to read all the way through to 8, 3. Everybody got it? Okay. So I'm just going to read this out loud. This is just, uh, this is the Acts of the Apostles' background on Paul. And we start out with um, the story of um, the stoning of Stephen, so the first martyr of the Christian church. So we're beginning in the middle of this story. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Okay, so now I want you to flip with me to chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 19, and then I want you to stop and discuss with a neighbor. Chapter 9. This is beginning with the first verse. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that is, to the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light fell from heaven, from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay, so turn to a neighbor um, and talk about what surprises you, strikes you, come up with a comment or a question, and we'll come back. Okay, let's come back together. Um, who's got a question or a comment they want to share? Or whose spouse or friend had a question or a comment they want to share? Okay, um, this is just kind of, I don't know that this is real relevant, but this Matthias, that's who it was, right, Randy? No, Ananias. Oh, Ananias, sorry. Um, is called a disciple. Mm-hmm. So at what point, he wasn't one of the original 12. Yes. At what point do people, I mean, how do we, when do people, is everybody a disciple once they're a believer and they're? Yeah. So it seems like what you're asking is when, when does disciple refer only to the original 12 and when does it become a term meaning all Christians or anyone who follows Jesus? That's a great question. Um, um, I mean, I think round about this point in the book of Acts. <laughs> so in the Gospels, it, um, I mean, it'd be interesting to, to go back and look. I can think of a few times when there are, like, disciples means more than the 12 in the Gospels. Often in the Gospels, when it talks about the disciples, it means that particular group. Um, even in the Gospels, it's not exclusive, but in Acts, as the Spirit's leading the church out into the world and more and more people are added to the Christian community, it, the center of gravity shifts so that more and more it is a way of talking about anyone who's committed to Jesus. Well, Dave, then uh, the first verse of this chapter, all this time Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples out for the kill. That's from the message. Um, the, the term disciples there it probably refers to believers because he was he was not just targeting that's correct the twelve yeah. he was Absolutely he was out right. after everyone 
That's right. Yeah. And that's why Ananias is afraid to go meet with him, right? Okay, one more. I, and I don't know that you can answer this one, but they were never told what happened to the people that were with Saul that may or may not have become believers. That's, that's great, yeah. There's a whole... Um, someone, should, someone should write a short story about them, <laughs> right? I'm serious. Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So, um, yeah, I mean, so pres- are they... Who are they? Are they people who sympathetic to his persecution of the Christians? Um, apparently, they just kind of wander off. Um, great question. It's one of those things where if we were editing this manuscript today, we would say, hey, Luke Acts, you're kind of leaving us hanging here, but he's not interested in that. Just an observation. Mm-hmm. I, I always feel like Paul is the best person he could find to do what he did. Uh-huh. He's very learned. He studied under the number one rabbi. Yeah. And uh, he's very enthusiastic. He's, this is, I got it right, and I'm going to kill all those Christians or bring them back. Mm-hmm. And basically Jesus said, you got it all wrong, but I want you to come to work for me. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't do that immediately. He spent quite a bit of time, years, I think, mm-hmm. before he really started to do that work. And I think he was going back to the Old Testament and tying it all together. If you read Romans, yeah, he's sure. constantly sure. referring back to, to the Old Testament. Yeah, he quotes the Old Testament a great deal. So in a little bit, I want us to look at some of the things Paul says about his Jewish upbringing as a way of reinforcing that point that Frank's making, yeah. Um, in many ways, Paul is the least likely Christian evangelist that's ever existed, but for that reason, all the more influential because he you know, went from being a persecutor of the church to part of the church and, um, yeah, had a powerful testimony, but also intimate knowledge of um, the faith. Okay, um, let me throw out a few points about this. So first, let's focus on Saul, okay? So what chapter are we in? We're in Acts 9. Where is that located in the Judea-Samaria-to-the-end-of-the-world schema? Right, to the ends of the earth, not the end of the world. Right, you can see it right here. Acts 9 and following is mission all over the Mediterranean world, to the ends of the earth. We're in Acts 9. So one of the most important things that happens in Acts 9 is the conversion of Saul. So, in other words, the structure of the book of Acts is telling us that the conversion of Saul is not just one individual coming to faith in Jesus, although it is that. It's part of God's plan to spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world, which is, in fact, what happens through Paul's ministry. So, um, remember, all of Paul's letters... He's not writing them to one friend. He's not even writing them to one church. He's writing them to a dozen different Christian churches that he started all over the place. And, you know, he'd go to Corinth and start a church, and then he'd leave, and then he'd go to Ephesus and start a church, and then he'd leave. He got around. So Acts presents this conversion as part of its narrative about how the Christian thing grew so quickly. So, um, when Paul describes himself, I forget where it is, he describes himself as an apostle to the Gentiles, that's very much in keeping with what Acts is showing us here, that God has a particular mission for him. So, the location of this story about Paul within the larger arc of the book of Acts is really important. The nature of the conversion is really important, too. So, God doesn't just um, appear to Paul. Jesus doesn't just appear to Paul. He gives him a job. He gives him a mission or a co-mission. Um, so, look at, look at the chapter again. Um, so in verse 5, 
we get the famous line, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And then um, skip down to the next paragraph. In verse 13, you get Ananias objecting to Jesus' call to go talk to Paul. And then in verse 15, God says, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. So notice here in verse 15, who comes first? Gentiles and kings. And the people of Israel come second. Within the context of ancient Judaism, you'd expect that to be reversed. You'd expect it to say, okay, Paul's going to go to the Jews first, and then he'll mention it to a few Gentiles. Paul is the other way around. Verse 16, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So what you're seeing here is this very particular mission to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to the goyim, um, as you say in Yiddish, um, that God has for Paul. So um, it's not just a conversion, it's a commission. Um, let's look at, so stick your finger in Acts chapter 9, and turn with me now to Philippians 3. And give me an amen when you found it. Amen. You guys found it faster than I did. There we go. No getting to the designated passage faster than your pastor. Um, I need to do some sword drills, I guess. Okay, so y'all found chapter 13 in Philippians, beginning with verse um, 2. Sorry, chapter 3, beginning with verse 2. I said something totally different. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 2 in Philippians. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. And then he starts ticking off his Jewish credentials, circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So it's quite a striking passage and many of you have probably heard it before, it testifies to the massive U-turn that took place in Paul's life. This story in Acts is, is a very graphic and powerful depiction of exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians, and it's the kind of thing that really dramatically changes a person's life. Prior to coming to faith in Jesus, Paul had lived his life with one set of values and one set of goals and one understanding of who God was, and then he met Jesus, and it all went out the window. <laughs> um, it's dramatic, it's life-changing, it's powerful, and it does happen. It does, it happened to Paul, and it does continue to happen today. Um, the history of the Christian church, of course, is dotted with people who very famously had some kind of experience like Saul did on the road to Damascus. People like St. Augustine, 
people like St. Ignatius Loyola, of course, Martin Luther might fall into this category, C.S. Lewis. Um, I went to college with a wonderful man from Taiwan who came in, um, he came from enormous wealth and um, became Christian, became Christian his freshman year of college and um, has de devoted the rest of his life to coming up with cures for rare cancers. And I mean, it's just the most remarkable change in his life and lifestyle you've ever seen. Um, and so I think that's one of the lessons we see in this story is simply the, the power and um, significance of coming to know Jesus and the way it can reshuffle and rearrange our priorities. Does anyone want to ask a question at this point? In chapter 9, he was in, I believe, verse 16. Uh, the Lord says, and now I'm about to show him what he's in for, mm -hmm. the hard suffering that goes with this job. <laughs> and That's great. And uh, I think Paul's recollection in this letter, which is entitled Breaking with the Past, uh -huh. describes um, what the result was of, sure. of uh, the hard suffering that he yeah. that he in, uh, incurred. And I was wondering, it also says in here that, that Paul was in Damascus for two days mm -hmm. and then started uh, speaking to disciples and preaching. Yep. But he encountered a lot of uh, opposition and, in fact, for a period of time, was hunted to be to be killed. Yep, that's exactly and right. And was that period of time uh, during which he was being hunted? Was that part of the suffering that he was he was uh, encountering? And that's what the Lord was going to show him. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, open up your Bibles and look at. So, beginning with verse nineteen. Um. For several days, Saul was in with, with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who were with him is amazed. Then, in verse, skip down to verse 23. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So, his former co-religionists in the Jewish community are understandably pretty steamed at him and try to have him bumped off. Um... Jeez Louise. And, and it pretty much continues from there. <laughs> he, he, so your point, Randy, is, is right on, you know, that he, um, by, by um, embracing Jesus, Paul was required to break with his past, and this occasioned a great deal of suffering for him, both, I think, personally, which you see in that Philippians 3 passage, the ability to say, okay, I understand now that all the things I was striving for for decades were actually worthless. And the thing I, I'm now shooting for is of all-encompassing value. Uh, that's one thing. That's painful enough. But then to experience hardship, persecution, the very real threat of death is, is a whole other element to it. And of course, Paul does wind up a martyr. What eventually happens is that he goes from city to city. He's rejected again and again in his preaching of the gospel, but that somehow the Christian community begins to flourish, and eventually he's arrested, sent to Rome, and finally beheaded. So it's not exactly, you know, an onward and upward success story in every possible way. Um, but part of what's really beautiful about Paul's story, and this is what I find incredibly poignant, right, is his dogged determination to stick with the word God has given him and stick with the mission God has given him. So remember, you know, Paul can complain about how difficult his life is, or he can, he can summarize it matter-of-factly, you know, and say, okay, I got, I got the lash, I got whipped, I got beaten up, people tried to stone me, people tried to kill me, but he can also say in Romans chapter 8, he'll say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed to us. So this is a person who is 
all in on Jesus and is willing to carry that cross to not, not because suffering is good per se, but because God's given him a mission and he's going to be faithful to it and see it through. Where it says the Jews conspired to kill him, I assume that was not the people who were Christian. It was the people he used to be an ally with. <laughs> that, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, presumably the same people that had sent him there, you know, or, or were supporting him in his mission to, um, to lock up Christians in the first place. Yeah, that's right. So conversion... Conversion, I want to suggest to you, is just a big form of repentance. So all of us who are practicing Christians in the course of our Christian life, we all need to repent every once in a while, right? You have an argument with your spouse, you lose your temper with your kid, and you think to yourself, wait a second, that wasn't the right way to behave. Ugh, okay. And you go back to them and you say, I'm sorry, I want to make amends, I want to do better. So that's, that is a small stakes form of repentance. Sometimes the repentance is bigger. Sometimes you do something that really hurts someone and you have to spend months or years trying to change your life, change the sort of person you are. What Paul's going through, of course, is sort of the biggest possible version of what repentance is, right? Remember, repent just comes from that Greek word metanoia that means to turn around, to reorient yourself. So Paul's doing a spiritual U-turn. He's saying the things I valued before were trivial. This is the thing now, right? I've been driving this car 80 miles an hour in the wrong direction, but by gum, I'm going to turn around and do a U-turn and start heading in the right direction. My point is not so. Is anyone here an adult convert to the Christian faith? No, I didn't, I didn't think so. So many of you, like me, presumably grew up within the church in some way, shape, or form. This type of conversion, a road, people call it a road to Damascus experience, is not universal. Not everyone has one, and that's okay. You need to know you're not a second-class Christian if you don't have a Paul sort of experience where there's voices and sounds and scales falling from your eyes. That's not, you don't need that to go to heaven. But um, repentance is something that, that needs to happen to all of us in the course of our Christian life. Repentance is an essential component of the Christian life. First, for asking forgiveness for a great many other significant issues. So, some of you have been nominal Christians at some point in your life, right? Or some of you have known nominal Christians who have gone from being a nominal Christian, I come at Christmas, I come at Easter, I don't really know much about Jesus, and I don't really want to know much about Jesus. They've gone from that to becoming active and committed Christians. That's repentance. That's a kind of conversion, if you want to say that. That is a reorienting of priorities and motivations just like what Paul had. I remember reading a story about a man who worked at Willow Creek Church up in Barrington who read a book um, about racial injustice in America. And he said uh, it was like being born again, again. <laughs> like uh, every, all the pieces fell into place and I suddenly felt like I understood my African-American brothers and sisters in faith so much better. And I said, okay, wait, we got to do something about this. We got to address this issue. How are we going to do this? It was like a second conversion for him. So again, that's, that's just repentance writ slightly larger. So what I'm trying to help you see is that you don't need to have a road to Damascus experience to be inspired by Paul's example, right? All of us in our life will have various experiences where we are startled by God. And we say, wait a second, I, I've been going in kind of the right direction, but I actually need to go over here. That's how God works, and that's good, even if you're not knocked off your horse. I have a question. Um, while Paul had a U-turn, it, it almost feels to me like God had a U-turn too, huh. because Christ was the, the savior to Israel. Yeah. And it seems like Christianity is picking up speed as we start to incorporate the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And it, 
it feels like we're going off in a different direction <laughs> yeah. as opposed to who Christ had originally been you know, yeah. thought to be, the, the, the savior of Israel. And we're kind of leaving, as Paul left what he had learned in the past, where it feels like we're almost leaving Israel mm-hmm. in the past yeah. and, and going a different way. I, I, I don't know if that gets rectified somewhere, but it's curious to me. That's a that's a great comment, Brian. Um, yeah. So one of the ironies of Christian history is that um, Jesus was Jewish. We worship a Jewish Messiah. Christians consider themselves to to be honorary Jews by by virtue of Jesus. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. We're part of the seed of Abraham, right? So in in Romans, Paul says we're like wild branches of a tree that got grafted onto the tree, right? The way a skilled gardener would say, wait a second, and like whittle off a little bit here and whittle off here and then kind of fuse them together. That's us. And there are a lot more of us than there are Jews, right? Jews are a numerical minority in America today and throughout the world. Um, So part part of the irony of Christian history is that Paul, a, a observant Jew until the very end of his life is going out and converting all these Gentiles to the way of Jesus. And within a few centuries, Christianity shifts from becoming a sect of Judaism, right? The kind of people who were mostly Jews who went to synagogues and had some quirky beliefs about Jesus that would have made their fellow Jews say, oh, I'm not sure that's right but still basically part of the household of Judaism, within a few centuries, all of a sudden, Christianity is this separate thing. And um, a lot of people, especially in the 20th century, against the background of the Holocaust, spend a lot of time thinking about this and thinking, okay, how do we rediscover a sense of the, the Jewishness of Christianity? Um, and it's, I think it's essential for Christians to do that. Was it really a U-turn, or was that God's plan all along? <laughs> and yeah. we just didn't, you know, maybe it was a fork in the road where the initial plan was to start with the Jews and then, you know, branch off sure. and include Gentiles. I mean, so sometime I encourage both of you to read Romans 9 through 11. So Romans 9 through 11 is exactly about this topic. So Paul says, you know, my own, my own people, my own flesh and blood aren't accepting the gospel. Oh, I wish that I could be damned if only they could be saved. And one of the things he winds up saying is that um, essentially it's something like that, essentially that God's preventing many Jews from coming to faith in Jesus serves the purpose of allowing the Gentiles to come in, to be accepted by faith into um, union with God, and that then um, the conversion of the Jews will kind of be the coup de grace, so to speak. So, I mean, Paul might like what you're saying. Um, In Acts, the very important role of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is there. And, of course, the the Jews were, I believe, you know, familiar with the, the Torah. Mm-hmm. And, very much. And the first book of the Bible actually referred to the Spirit. Yeah. So I guess my question is, the Spirit being such an important role in, 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 so in conversions, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, what kind of a role did the Jews continue to see in the spirit? That's a great question. I mean, um, so, yeah, there's two ways of answering that question. There's the, like, short and accessible way, and there's the dissertation length way of answering it. And for your sake, I will spare you the long, boring version. I mean, so, um, Christians have a doctrine of the Trinity, where God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Jews don't. And so there's a lot of talk about the the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. A lot of talk about it. 
I think for a Jew then and now, they would probably say, well, the Spirit of God is just a way of saying God. So they don't have the same distinction that we have to say, well, the Spirit is God, but the Spirit is not the same as the Son or the Father. They're different. Um, but from, from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, right, where God's Spirit is brooding over the face of the waters all the way through, right? So Ezekiel 37 that we heard a couple of weeks ago, it's a lot of talk about God's Spirit. God's breathing His Spirit into the bodies of the dead. So it's definitely there. There are differences in interpretation, primarily. My, my understanding is that God chose the Jewish race to be his representative on earth. They were supposed to be an example to the rest of the world, and then they mm -hmm. would flock to them and say, I want to be just like you guys, because every time they sinned and fell away, mm -hmm. then everything went to heck. Mm -hmm. But Jesus, at the, at, at the end of his life, not after he rose from the dead, and he gave him the Great Commission, he said, go forth and to the whole world. Right. You know, yeah. and I think that was the plan all along, is that Jews just didn't fulfill their destiny. Mm -hmm. Right. And so part of, part of what you see in... So everything that y'all have said about the relationship of church and Israel, since Brian made his original comment, has some kind of representation in the history of Christian thought. Christians have been, have been trying to figure this one out for 2,000 years. That and $20 will get you $20, right? Um, so, I mean, there, there are some people that would simply say, "What well, right, well, what's happened is the Jews had a mission to be God's chosen people, and they failed at it. And so God said, right, you're not chosen anymore. I'm going over here to the Gentiles. That had a lot of traction for a long time. It was pretty convincingly implicated in anti-Semitism in the run-up to the Holocaust, and it's a pretty, the problem is, too, it's a bad, I think, it's a bad reading of God. We don't want to be, we don't want to say that God selected a chosen people and then said, right, nuts to you, I'm going over here and getting a better deal, right? So the trick is, yes, inclusion of the Gentiles was God's plan from the very beginning. I think you're exactly right about that, right? That's there from Genesis 12. It's the, if I were to try and answer that question, what you have to do is talk about the unexpected creativity of God, right? That God is faithful, but he's faithful in ways we would never expect. So, you know, his, he sends the Messiah, but the Messiah winds up being publicly executed. And the Messiah is Jewish, and he's faithful to God's covenant with the Jews, and then all these Gentiles <laughs> wind up getting converted and responding to the message. But God hasn't abandoned his covenant love for the Jews. I think we have to say all those things, um, and they don't, you know, if we were writing the script for how we would expect God to behave, we might not include any of those things. But fortunately, we're not in charge of writing the script. God is in charge of writing the script. Um, this is such a great conversation. I want to be sure to talk about Ananias before we get out of here. So let me keep moving. Look at, look at Acts 9. What happens if Ananias doesn't answer God's call? What happens? Right, we'd go to synagogue. <laughs> we, right, we, perhaps we would all have become pious Jews, right, instead of Christians. Right, so Saul is struck down and blinded on the road to Damascus. He's led to some hovel in Damascus by his friends who promptly bug out and say, freaky things are happening, we're out of here, right? And then he just stays there forever and is never welcomed into the Christian community, never received. The gospel never spread throughout the Mediterranean world, right? So the, the, the hero of this story is Ananias, not Paul. Paul is just a schmo who gets knocked off his horse by God. That happens to everybody, right? The hero of this story is Ananias, who, as far as I know, does not appear again in the book of Acts, there's no feast day set aside for him in the calendar of the church. Um, but his uh, willingness to listen to God is the pivot on which this story turns. So let's take a look here. Look at... So God gives Ananias his instructions in verse 11 and verse 12, and then he objects in verse 13. 
Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. Is that statement accurate or inaccurate? What's that? It's, it's, it's accurate, especially as far as Ananias knows. His information is outdated, but it is only recently outdated. <laughs> um, I, I love this. So how, how often does the Spirit's work consist in helping us to set aside outdated perceptions of things? <laughs> where we formed a point of view about something, perhaps for good reasons, but then the Spirit starts tugging on our sleeve and saying, okay, wait a second, you need to rethink this. How, how do you think Ananias felt when God spoke to him and told him that he needed to go welcome Saul? I guess my question about Ananias is, um, he's referred to as a disciple. Yeah. He must have had some kind of connection to the original 12. Sure. Or one of their yep. followers. Yep. So he's probably fearful, but by, by his connection to those who follow Jesus and likely either had, had their, their fear removed mm -hmm. by virtue of their connection with Jesus or perhaps were able to live with that fear, wouldn't he have been the same way? That's a great question. Um, perhaps, the, so certainly he was afraid. We have to assume he's afraid because we see it very clearly in his comments. Lord, you are telling me to go minister to a bad person. Are you sure this is a good idea? Um, perhaps the thing that gives him the courage to answer God's call is his exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The, the message of, you know, Jesus was dead and now he's alive. We didn't understand him, but now we do. Perhaps that gives him a willingness to say, okay, God, this seems kind of crooked, but maybe this seems kind of bizarre in the way the God of Israel is sometimes bizarre. But for that very reason, I'm going to give it a shot. Maybe. I mean, think about you know, what if uh, your brother or sister got beaten up really bad by someone and then that person found Jesus <laughs> and they show up in this church on Sunday and now all of a sudden they're, they want to be your best friend because they found Jesus. I mean, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine the sense of fear or threat that Ananias must have been experiencing in this situation, or that the rest of the Christian community must have been experiencing. So, you know, just a few chapters earlier, we see him, you know, he's participating in Stephen's stoning. Are we to assume that when they say the Lord spoke to him, I mean, mm. are they hearing words, or is it a feeling? Are they... Is it something they're hearing in their head? Or because they say on the road to Damascus, his right. buddies alongside heard the words, but they didn't see anything. Sure. So if it's real words, then I'm thinking you might be a little more inclined to believe it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> if you, you know, there's nobody around and you're hearing words from heaven, you might be a little more inclined to, to say, okay, I'll go to this sure. Saul guy because sure. you've got some... So. That's a, that's a great question, Lori. So yeah, in, in the first 10 verses, it's pretty clear that what Saul hears is an external, an audible voice because the other, his other buddies hear it too. So later on, I mean, um, there was one, I think it's an interior voice for Ananias. I, I, I don't think you can prove it one way or another from the chapter. The, a commentary I looked at today said they thought in telling the story of Ananias, they, it may have been a callback to um, God calling Samuel way back in the book of 1 Samuel, right? And so some of you know this story where Samuel's sleeping and his master is next to him and he hears God saying, Samuel, Samuel. A and he says, okay, it's me, right? I think it's a good question. I think there's not a definitive answer in the text. 
we are, quote unquote, stuck, in air quotes, in a situation in which God speaks to us in a variety of ways, more often than not in a subtle, interior way. And part of our own faith, our own response to God, is being willing to move towards God in the midst of that uncertainty. Um, one of my friends, um, when I was a freshman in college, I made friends with a guy uh, at Yale who, when I got to know him, I was like, this guy is a whacked out, charismatic nut job. And then every year that I've known him since then, he's risen in my estimation to now where I think I've, it's like Jesus is here and my friend is here. He's an amazing human being, an amazing person of faith. And one of the things I learned from him is that in his church, they had this wonderful thing where if they felt like God was saying something, they would not say, thus says the Lord, blah, 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 blah. What they would just say is, I feel like maybe God wants me to tell you that, blah, 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 blah. And three quarters of the time, the person would say, okay, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And nothing would happen. But one quarter of the time, the person would act as though they'd been struck by lightning. And I think there's the simple willingness to step out in faith when prompted is, is itself part of God's work. Okay, Ananias. Um, look at the profound welcome he gives him in verse 17. It's easy to overlook. Um, Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul. The laying of hands is this ancient tradition in the church, right? It's not just saying, hey, buddy, how are you? It's getting ready to pray for him. If you've ever gone, you know, to, to minister to someone in the hospital and laid your hands on them to pray, if you've ever been ordained an elder or a deacon, as many of you have, you come forward and we lay hands on you and pray for you. It's a profound experience. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul. There it is right there. That means my brother in Christ, Saul. So the thing I love about Ananias in this story is that although he does not hesitate, he hesitates at the beginning, but once he's in, he's in. It's easy to imagine a scenario in which Ananias goes and there's a very timid knock at the door and then Ananias is peeking around the door and, and then he takes one step and he says, hello, brother. You know, Ananias doesn't do it that way. He just, if he goes, he goes. He goes all in. So he addresses him as brother. He prays for him and um, the scales fall from his eyes and then he gets up and he's baptized. It's a beautiful story of including someone in the Christian community who might not, who others might not wanted to have experienced. Similar point here that was made with regard to Saul. Not all of us are going to have a dramatic conversion experience like Saul. All of us will need to reorient our priorities at some point along the way. All of us will need to repent at some point along the way. Similarly, not all of us will have Ananias' exact experience, but we're all going to be invited to step out of our comfort zone. How do you spell faith? R-I-S-K, <laughs> right? So, um, so much of the life of faith is God inviting us to enter into vulnerability in one way or another, even if it's as simple as walking up to Starbucks, walking up to someone in Starbucks and saying, hey, I thought I saw you at Knox last weekend. What's your name? It doesn't have to be anything dramatic, but stepping out of our comfort zone in response to God's command, really important. Um, let me share some brief takeaways with you, and then we can wrap up. So, and this is very much a recap, so not all of this is going to be new. So, one, faith involves repentance. Faith involves repentance. It involves constantly um, listening to God and being willing to reorient our priorities when God speaks to us and when God illuminates us. Yeah, I mean, I just think that's absolutely essential. Second, faith involves a willingness to suffer. This is the tough pill to swallow. I know this is a little bit of a downer. Um, one of the amazing things you see in the book of Acts is that the persecution of the church and the growth of the church are interwoven. So you would expect the book of Acts to say, right, 
it was great. We were all fantastic believers for Jesus, and the church just grew and grew, and everything was fine. That's not what the book of Acts says at all. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, right, go back to chapter 8 um, of Acts. So, ch chapter 7 ends with the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Chapter 8 begins with verse 1, where it says, That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. So the thing that pushes the Christian community out of Judea, out of Jerusalem, into Judea and then into Samaria is what? It's the persecution of the church. So the thing that's, part of the thing that's driving the, the missionary expansion of the church is the effort by many people to stamp out the Christian community. But instead of stamping them out, it's like, it's like trying to squash a seed in the garden with your foot. You're not going to squash it. You're just going to drive it deeper down into the earth where it will bloom. Um, after this, after that happens, the next heading in my Bible is Philip preaches in Samaria. So Philip is the one going up to Samaria. And then in the second half of chapter 8, beginning with verse 26, you get the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So this incredible story of the, you know, one of the first Christians in sub-Saharan Africa, um, the gospel is starting to germinate all over. Um, and of course, you see this in the life of Paul as well, that um, Paul has an incredibly fruitful ministry that is enormously influential, and he he has a, it is a life marked by hardship, but also by a very deep sense of God's presence. We need to have both of those things. Um, a couple of years ago, I went on a mission trip to Egypt, and I visited the evangelical seminary there. There's a Presbyterian seminary in Egypt. Because there's a Presbyterian church in Egypt, Egypt is about 10% Christian, Many of its Christians are Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, but a good number of them are Protestant Christians. And I met some of these people, and they were amazing. And let me tell you, it was, it was acts all over again because there is a healthy amount of discrimination that Christians in Egypt face. But that church had started 200 new churches in 10 years. So approximately 20 churches every year throughout the Middle East, not just in Egypt, but in places like Libya and Iraq, places white American Christians like me could never, ever go. Um, and it was, it's very much this mystery, right, that God is very happy to use, uh, what is it? God's very happy to use Christians who are being persecuted. Something about that faithfulness that doesn't shirk from suffering or discrimination or persecution is very powerful. I'm not sure what it is. Um, thank God we're not being persecuted like the way the early church was or like the way people are in Egypt from time to time. Um, but I think the willingness to stay the course and be consistent in answering God's call no matter what, even when it is hard, um, is absolutely key. Okay, last thing. Faith involves risk. Um, the risk of answering God's call when we are uncertain. So this can be something as simple as feeling prompted to do something by the Holy Spirit, to call a person, to text a person, to say, are you okay? It can be something as big as serving on session or serving in a ministry here at the church. Um, the, the risk of faith also involves welcoming those we have good reason to dislike <laughs> or those who are unlike us. Um, and I think that's part of what you see in this very poignant story about Ananias, right? That if the gospel is doing its thing, there are always going to be people being incorporated into the body of Christ who 
um, have made a bunch of mistakes, have screwed up, have done things that we might find very dubious, <laughs> um, but God is at work in their life. Or there might be people who are simply unlike us. Um, you know, it is surely part of God's design that Paul, the former Pharisee, the one who scrupulously observed the law, was sent by God and wound up converting all these pagans who didn't know spit about the God of Israel or about the Old Testament law. I mean, it's sort of God's wonderful sense of humor. Um, taking the risk to welcome those unlike us or those we dislike, I think, is a very important part of Christian discipleship. There's a wonderful story about a man named Leslie Newbigin, who's a big theological influence of mine. He was a, um, a British man. He lived in the last century. He was a missionary in India for 40 years, and then he, quote-unquote, retired. He came back to England, and he started writing books and working as a pastor in England. And he wrote brilliant, brilliant books, one of my favorite authors. But he, for a time, in his 70s, he accepted a position as the pastor of a Presbyterian church in uh, inner-city Birmingham, England, in, in what would be considered a rough neighborhood, uh, in a multicultural neighborhood where not a lot of people looked like him, and in a church that was directly opposite a prison. And one of the first things he did was say, every previous pastor had said, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with the prison. We don't want to have anything to do with the prison. That's scary. We don't want to have... And he just said, well, it's right there. They're our mission field. And so they developed a really powerful ministry to the prisoners who were being released and helped them reintegrate to the community. And it was very much this sense of, these are the people God's called us to. And <laughs> perhaps we are just as uncomfortable as anyone else would be in this situation, but we are called to them and we're not gonna ignore them. Um, and it was a part of a, a wonderful rebirth for that community, which soon recovered its vitality and its numbers. So I think there's, uh, there's something quite powerful about a church that's willing to answer God's call, embrace uncertainty, and welcome folks who are unlike us. Um, okay, that's about all we have time for tonight. Um, thank you so much for being here. I'll see you in two weeks. We're not going to meet next week. Um, email me with your questions for the AMA and come back in two weeks to learn everything you ever wanted to know about Revelation. Thanks. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.